Good morning. Welcome to the show today. I'm really excited um, for Winter Faith Podcast. Um, wherever you're listening to this, whenever you're listening, I'm joined by um, Josh Ross and Beverly Ross, who just wrote a book, or uh, I guess earlier um, this year, released a book called um, Scarred Hope. And so I'm really thankful that they've taken some time right before the end of the year, during probably the busiest time of the year, to sit down and talk with me a little bit. So how are you guys doing this morning? Good, very good. good. And so I'll uh, start with you, Beverly, if you could talk a little bit about the response of the book. And it, what I just wanted to um, also say, when uh, when did it release, too, if you could um, mention that? Well, I would love to mention that. It released yeah. September 1st is when uh, it released, and it's done very well. The response has been more than I ever would have, have dreamed. Uh, it's been really, really a beautiful, sacred space. It was a, a sacred space book to write, which anytime I say those words, it doesn't always bring up all, all the good feels. I think sacred space is frequently when you go into the trench. The book is written from a place of in, in the trenches. And uh, to me, it's about how do you get back up? How, how do you find faith again? How do you take care of your body again? I'm not sure that I like what I just said. It's not about finding faith again. It's about learning to have faith when you're in the deep water and, and you're asking questions. How do you hold space with, with that? Um, it's written from a pastoral point of view, but it's also written from a counseling point of view. That's what I do. I do marriage and family. I, I've done a lot of grief work. My daughter, Josh's sister, died uh, 10 years ago, February of 2010. We're coming up on 11 years. And so it it opens with that story from my perspective. And then it takes off from there. Um, the book did very well in new releases that first little while, and we've just been, we've been shocked at how, how much people have valued the stories, the uh, tools given there, because it's not only, and I think this is a really important part about Scarred Hope, it's not only for people struggling with the grief of death. We do not believe that death is the only grief-producing event, nor do we believe that it's always the worst grief-producing event. There's been a lot of grief in the last year from a lot of different, um, man, just different roads, different aspects, things we, it kind of stripped us of things while we're wearing masks. A lot of our emotional masks were taken off in, in 2020. We didn't have the energy to carry them anymore. And so it's been, um, Scarred Hope is just, I, I've gotten as much feedback from people dealing with other kinds of grief as I have with people dealing with grief from death. Mm -hmm. It's really important. We address divorce in there. We address broken relationships, just lots of different fallen dreams, um, lots of different aspects. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. Josh, what about for you? Since the book came out in September, so we're a few months away from when it first, first released, so has it changed since then or about the same for you? You know, man, like, uh, hey, first of all, thanks for thanks for having us on. It's always good to, to chat with you in yeah. any kind of forum. Uh, man, we miss you not being in Memphis, but man, I'm so I just love hearing the work that you're doing uh, where you are. Uh, so thanks. Uh, thanks for having us on, man. This is fun. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, when it comes to 
I mean, writing books in some way, you're like a, an artist. And I know for some artists or creative types, uh, they love the finished product. And for some, they get just as much out of the process as they do the finished product. And, uh, you know, for me, the, the process of writing this with my mom was just as thrilling as, as the finished product that is now in the hands of, of a lot of people. Uh, so this has been a long journey. Um, you know, in some ways it started two, three years ago, I guess in the fall of 2018 is when my mom and I first started talking about uh, process, or writing a book together. So uh, it's been a long time in the making. But to have that, I mean, for it to be released, to see how it's uh, helping give language and vocabulary and inspiration to people and groups has been, man, it's been great. Um, and we have a, a new edition coming out uh, in the at the first of the year, January. Uh, we have oh. a discussion guide. Okay. That is now a piece of the book, so people can jump on Amazon, and you just got to make sure you click the scarred hope. And in parentheses on Amazon, it'll have the, revi the uh, revised edition with a discussion guide, like in the title. Mm -hmm. And it's an eight-week discussion guide. You know, one of some of the feedback we got is people they wanted some kind of discussion guide. They wanted a way to uh, to process this with other people. So Sarah Brooks, who's a uh, um, She's a member at the Hills, a great writer, has a really uh, a blog that's taken off over the last few years. Sarah Brooks, a good friend of of ours, graciously stepped in and wrote this. We're excited to get that in the hands of people that can hopefully, you know, because Scarred Hope's not just something, uh, you know, just to read on your own, like a fiction book and then put it on a shelf. We, we hope that it equips and empowers people, uh, you know, as they continue through life where there's going to be a lot of pain and grief. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really good. That's and really know good. that, you know, my first book was called Scarred Faith. This one's mm -hmm. called Scarred Hope. So people just ask, you know, when Scarred Love coming? And maybe I could just keep up this Scarred theme every few years and see what happens. Yeah. Why not? I think it, I mean, I think it's pretty appropriate. Like we all, you know, we all have that scarred faith, I think, and, or I call it, like, winter faith, like, we all have that, I think, it's just whether we want to acknowledge that or not, and I like what you said, Josh, about, like, giving it language, um, Beverly, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about the different parts of the book, which I guess now there's a, a, a fourth part, too, I guess, now, too, um, but just how the book was kind of organized, because I actually, I thought that was really helpful, and I really enjoyed that because I had heard a lot of, you know, the first part of the book, but, you know, and I was like, okay, where do we go from here? This is really, man, this is not something easy um, to read. I think it's important, but not easy to read. And so uh, I really enjoyed that. So I was hoping you could talk about that too. Yeah. Josh did all the organizing it and I thought it was genius too. I thought it was fabulous the way he did that out. Scarred Hope is written in three parts. The fourth part that we've added is the discussion guide, which we definitely invite people into. We wanted it to be a discussion piece, but the first part is, is I, I wrote the first part and it is Jenny's death. And uh, it's not just about her death. It, it's about my heartbreak that beginning. And the first part is brutal. It is, it's hard to read. Uh, Josh has offered multiple times to pay $50 to any grown man that can get through the first part without shedding a tear. It is mm. really a hard, 
a hard read, but we all have, have a story like something like that. It might not be that brutal, but we all have a story. And so that's, we felt like the more authentic that we could be in telling that story um, would be helpful. Part two is written from uh, a counseling pastoral perspective. Josh and I write that part together. And it is really offering people tools for whatever whatever is rising up inside of you to calm anxiety. I frequently refer all my clients that have read the book and my friends to chapter seven, which is where we talk about how to take care of your body, how to take care of yourself emotionally. What do you do about relationships? What are expectations about relationships? And then how do you nurture your own soul spiritually? And the other part of, of two is about spiritual air, about being okay with the groanings that Paul does such an eloquent job talking about in Romans 8. Josh writes a gorgeous chapter on that. And then part three, I think most people talk about part three being their very favorite. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to read what Josh did. It was hard to write, he tells me. He, he did the transcribing of it. But we had planned on getting together face to face. But because of the pandemic, we just had to do it on FaceTime. But Josh and I, in part three, tackled 10 questions. And uh, it's conversational. It's conversational between a mother and a son. It's conversational between two friends because we are. It's conversational between co colleagues because we do share work together. And it's just um, we entertain questions like how do you nurture a marriage in the midst of grief and heartache? Does time heal? And I think that's an interesting piece that that uh, we always we always address, but in my opinion, it's sort of a religious cliche. I'm not even sure if that's if that's an appropriate goal. Josh, help me. What are some of the other pieces in in part three? Some of the other questions. Uh, does everything happen for a reason? You know, we process, uh, especially for parents. About half of them deal specifically with death and half don't. But, you know, um, about your bio for parents who have lost children, how do you cultivate a healthy marriage when you've experienced loss? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm blanking on a few of the others. But, um, and Andrew, I bet you've come in contact with a lot of those questions and statements in, in your line of work. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, in my line of work of like, you know, wrestling with, I mean, men, women and children that are experiencing homelessness specifically is what I'm doing. And then previously working at um, a hospital as a hospital chaplain, like a lot of time, I really resonated with the parts where you say people are scared of those that are mourning, they don't know what to say. So a lot of times we're too silent. So we say nothing. I mean, I was like a paid professional chaplain and there are a lot of times I was really worried about saying the, the wrong thing. Right. Um, and I was, I think part of what I've learned is like, I am more comfortable speaking now. Whereas before, like when I first started being a chaplain in Memphis, yeah, I was pretty quiet chaplain at times. Um, and so I really, I, I was like, yeah, that's, I really get that. Um, but then, yeah, the, the, the grief of working with um, populations that are struggling with homelessness and going through um, an economic crisis and a health crisis every day of their life, not just during 2020. 
yeah, I mean, I see a lot of pain and suffering. And for me, what I take from the book and from your example is like the, the hope aspect, because I struggle to find hope a lot of times. And I, even if I find hope because of all the good things in my life, like then I look at other people and really compare like, okay, where does this person go? Like they don't have job opportunities that I have and that breaks my heart. And um, there's all sorts of reasons why. So yeah, a lot of those questions, I really did enjoy the third part, the, the conversations and um, it, it is something that I, I enjoy talking about, but I know other people you know, might not as much enjoy talking about grief and how to overcome it. But for me, like, I need to talk about that stuff. I don't know how people go through not talking about it. Um, I think you bring up a great point. I think we're scared to talk about it because we're afraid to say the wrong thing. But what I grief, what might be the wrong thing to you may be the perfect thing for Josh. And so the, the rules get very blurred in what is right and wrong. And so what we've got to be able to do is show up and read, read eyes, pay attention, be able to circle back. But one of the things that I think we both were really um, passionate about with Scarred Hope is stopping, empowering people to go deeper than religious cliches that hurt people's faith. And I uh, have personal experience with hospital chaplains, just since you bring that up, that use those cliches. And oh, yeah use them all the time but they aren't helpful because mm -hmm. we've got to be able to go this really hurts not just oh they're in a better place you know they're in a better for that moment in time I remember my granddaughter saying this who was nine nine years old my mommy is not in a better place the best place she could be is with me and that's her I get that yeah got to make sure in those early days while it may be our truth We've just got to make sure that, that we're able just to walk with each other. And um... I think another part for me, the mo, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things to go. It's not like better or worse. It's just on my mind is your granddaughter. Um, I do wonder like, how is, you know, how is Christmas for her? Um, how old was she? You said it was it's been 11 years since. Mm -hmm. She um, when Jenny died, she's now 20. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause like I have a seven year old um, daughter and I talked about that with my wife. Like, can you imagine? And she's like, no, like there's no way. So I think for me that, you know, personally is pretty gut wrenching. And I always, when I'm reading about Jenny and your family, I'm always like, you know, I wonder how she's doing. You know, she's got a great army around her, and uh, I promised her I would let her tell her own story. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. And yeah. I, I think I was just saying, I just think that's good that that is in there, like how you wrestled with that. Like, wow, this is really difficult, and it's still difficult. You talk about the process of how um, in the book, I think it's in the second part, how you wrestle with your own self-care, and it's something you do every day. Um, it's not like a one-time thing. It's like daily and it's exhausting and tiring to take care of yourself. You know, I think this is a great time. I'm just going to mention this and I might yeah. mention 
run away, but I think it's a great time to mention it. The first line of, of the book, Josh writes it in the introduction, is, Josh, I have cancer. And that was definitely the impetus for writing the book. Right. Josh and I were in Austin doing a podcast uh, with Luke Norsworthy when uh, I realized I probably had cancer again. And it was three minutes before the book went live on Amazon. Mm. And I found another knot. Right. And so I, I do not know Scarred Hope apart from my cancer diagnosis. Um, I don't know how to get it. No worries. I've spent every moment since Scarred Hope went live in another cancer battle. And what I'm, I have had to reclaim everything I wrote. I've had to go back through it and go, yeah, that was true in grief. Yes, I've got, I've got, I know that, I know that's true. I know that's true because the last few months have been brutal going back through the, I don't know season. We went through about six weeks there that I was just in lots of testing. We didn't know what was happening. And all the doctor was saying is your cancer is crazy. Your cancer is absolutely crazy. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? How crazy is it? What does that mean? So, you know, now I'm coming through. I had a double mastectomy December 1st. I've spent the month of December healing. This is the first first thing I've done in, in December that would even be to discuss it. And now I'm able to talk about it without crying. Mm. But I'm telling you, Josh and I did a podcast early in, in this, right after the book came out, that a, a woman from L.A. began to read my own writing back to me. She didn't know I was struggling with cancer again about mm. My throat clamped, and I thought, I'm just about to bust it again. I cannot believe I've got, I've got to reclaim this again. I've got to step back in. So I say that to say, scarred hope is more about a process, exactly what jo- than it is the product with the period at the end. That is exactly what our faith walk is like. It's not a product. It's not deciding to have hope once. It's deciding to live in hope and redeciding it over and over and over again. It's about deciding if I'm going to die, which there, there were some times in this last six, last six weeks prior to the mastectomy that I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I just had a gallbladder removal and so my gut was hurting and they weren't sure if that was something going on with this. And But I know that how I'm going to die is based on how I'm going to live. And I've got to make a decision how I'm going to live, no matter what the diagnosis is. I'm not just going to live with joy because on December 3rd, I found out that they got all my cancer and I'm clear margins. I have to know, we have to know as followers of Jesus that even if the diagnosis would not have been good and I would not have gotten clear margins, and, and it was going to be a really scary journey. That does not mean that I'm robbed of joy and of peace and of hope. I've got to learn. I've got to walk that out. Because God's goodness does not depend on my diagnosis. God's goodness does not depend on my prognosis. Mm-hmm. And so I think redeciding that all over again and making sure 
that my inner circle gets, we don't just follow the Lord because we get good news. We're going to follow him and we're going to stand with each other. You know, this morning I've been, I've been already conversing with a, a beautiful friend of mine. I've known her for years who did not get my, my diagnosis, did not get a prognosis. In fact, she got denied going into the program that she was, experimental program that she was hoping to get. Her prognosis is not good. And um, encouraging her to still live with joy and, and peace and hope. And it's okay to cry in the midst of that. Joy and peace don't mean we don't lay on the floor and throw big fits. It means we get back up and we allow the Holy Spirit. It, it's supernatural. It's stuff you can't even explain or explore. But that's what scarred hope is. It is about that. And it was a good tool for me to go back through and to reclaim a deeper truth that as I swam in deep waters going, hey, Lord, what, what now? And the cool part is he never, and this is with Jenny's death too, he never left me void of his goodness. There was always another phone call. There was always somebody dropping by or bringing. There was always a scripture that came to mind. And I think that's just absolutely the way of the Lord. He just provides what what we have to have. And it's not just physical things. It's um, it's air. It's breath. It's mm. breath. Mm. It, it is hard to not just associate the, like, if I get the wrong answer that to still have hope like what how do you may i let josh talk a little bit like how do you wrestle with that when you see other people and you know they don't get the diagnosis that's positive um i just i don't i, I mean i know there's no answers so i guess that's kind of just wondering like how do you how do you process that stuff with with others or maybe even with yourself <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and maybe this is a good part, Mom, for you to talk a little bit about comparing grief. Mm. And we, I mean, we talk about that some of the book. Yeah. I, I know you lived this. I mean, both of you, Andrew, you lived this, especially when you were uh, a hospital chaplain, because I'm sure you were going into some rooms where you knew people were going to be out within a couple of days. And other times you walked in a room and those people probably aren't leaving the hospital. And right, Mom, I know you deal with people all the time who are and we're, we're prone to do that, um, where we compare grief in our own lives. And I've had people come and they're like, who am I to be upset about my, my COVID positive test when people, you know, are in, in a third world country who you know, suffer from malnutrition. And, and part of my response is God doesn't compare grief. Mm. I don't mm. see God comparing grief at all. I mean, maybe every once in a while, God lifts up a chin and says, Hey, you know, let me, let me lift you up. Um, but I, you know, when, when you read places of cast all your anxiety on God, because God cares for you. I mean, there's God who sits with us and receives whatever pain we bring before, before the Lord. So God doesn't compare, compare grief is a, is a good place to begin. Therefore, if we're not going to try to compare grief and, and meet people wherever they are on the journey. I think then the conversation becomes, 
you know, what are those truths that hold us together through whatever it is we may be going through? What are those anchors that whether my mom's diagnosis is she's cancer free or her friend's diagnosis is she's not, that they're both standing on some of the same truths as they try to live out life? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It, what do y'all think of that? It's, I think that's good to, it always helps to, to kind of look at, oh, how is God seeing this? And, and I think that is a good point that I don't think I'd think about that much. Um, is there, you think, um, I guess I'll ask for Beverly, is there a reason we always go to comparison? I mean, I don't do comparison just with grief. I do it with everything. And my wife will even say like, you do a lot of comparing. I'm like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I do. Why, why, why do I do that? Why do so many people do that? I think it's the human way. I don't think it's God's way, but I do think it's what we're wired. I mean, yeah. so much in the gospels, even with the boys, you know, with, with the disciples there. Uh, this last Sunday, I was so drawn to Luke 22 again, where Jesus does this fabulous piece to, Peter, you know, where he says, Simon, Simon, uh, Satan's asked permission to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith won't fail. And when you get back up, go strengthen your brothers. But preceding that, the boys, after Jesus tells them, this is the last time I'm going to be with you, something big is about to happen. I mean, they go in this comparison journey on who's the best, who's the worst. They get in this fight. And so I'm not sure that, that the sifting is a part of, of comparison. There's so many things we do from a human perspective that are absolutely not helpful to our own growth. And I think it's helpful to recognize that at the base of the cross of Jesus, we are all, now I'm not just talking followers of Jesus, all people are more sane than we are different. At the cross of Jesus, there is a sameness in humanity. And I used to do the comparison, too. I'm a three on, on the Enneagram. Comparison is my way. Who's the best? And I want it to be, you know, like the, the doctor, when I got this cancer diagnosis and I met with the doctor, he said, I said, no, wh- what do I do? How do I heal? And he said, rest. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be the best rester you've ever seen in your life. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do this well. But what, what helps me is to know if I am the best that's not helpful to have somebody up under me. And if I'm the worst, it's not some, it's, it's not helpful for whichever side I come out on. It's best and helps me most when we're together. Hmm. When we walk arm in arm, comparisons are not helpful. And what Dr. Brene Brown so beautifully points out, uh, Desmond Tutu in, in his book on, on joy points out, that comparisons rob us of joy. People who compare, and and I'm speaking to to myself here, when I'm in comparison mode, I'm in work mode, I'm in hustle mode, hustling for my own worth, and it robs me of my joy that I experience. Just, oh, yes, Lord, yes, I am good enough when I'm just with you. And so the, I mean, people compare grief. I heard it so much after Jenny died. Like, oh, I can't even talk to you about my grief because it was my grandmother that died. But there's nothing worse than losing a child. 
And what I want to say is, how is that helpful for either one of us if we can't walk together? The more and more my my breast cancer, uh, this last, in in November, October, November, the more the word got out about it. I had clients say, I feel ridiculous sitting on this couch, talking to you about my problems, knowing what you're going through. Like, I just want to be with you. I want to hear your problem. I want us to walk together doesn't help us when what what the Lord has called us to because he hardwired us this way is to connect well with each other and comparisons just drop I mean it just drives a nail through connection um just like what you know in marriage is it you know is there I don't know is there any trick in marriage when you're in different points of grief um yeah, like you talk about like the connection, being together, but it's like when you're in different spots in the grieving process or comparison process or maybe like confidence or connection with God, I, th- I think, I mean, I'm coming up on three years, so I don't have a lot of experience, but I do recognize like, wow, this is, this is really difficult to kind of like, it's almost easier sometimes, oh, I'm just going to get away from everything and I'm going to avoid things but when you're in it and you're trying to get that connection and people are at different spots in their marriage and grieving process that I don't know what are your words of wisdom for that if you can solve that that would help a lot (laughs) it's tough my husband and I are uh, totally different personalities Mm. we live life differently I mean our roots the same and our goal is the same but we are very different personalities and so we did grieve very, very differently. What I knew is that it was going to bless us the most if we could get curious and become each other's students without judging each other and expecting. Mm-hmm. I couldn't expect him to be where I was in grief because he wasn't looking at it like I was. I, I couldn't do it like he, he did it. And so we have to get curious and ask each other questions. Tell me more about that. I want to know more what, what you're seeing. I want to know what it's like. Ah, oh, that's it. It's if I can stay out of the seat of judgment. Mm-hmm. Do you struggle to like you get into a role of like a counselor instead of a husband or wife? And then that also can be a conflict. Cause I think I do that sometimes. Normally, I do grief and this and the last the breast cancer thing stripped me of all my um I just lost a lot of energy. I think when I say energy, I'm not just talking physical physically draining too, but I didn't stay as professional as I do in other points of of my life. And so I even bring that into the counseling room with, I'm a really good counselor. So I I need you to hear this because I I do that well, but it's also a thing not to be the one in in the the know where I'm not the one sitting in the room with all the answers. The answers for you are not within me. The answers for you are within you and my job professionally, marriage, friend, everything, is to empower you to find those answers within you. I Mm -hmm. want, as you've spent time with me, 
for the Holy Spirit to have freedom inside of you. Is that? Yeah, it, yeah, it's like, if you can, it almost like, if you can just, it's like, like a mindset of saying, like, I, I don't have this, I think I struggle too much, because I just want to go to answers, and if, and, and to get into the mindset of, like, okay, God has answers, the Holy Spirit has answers, you have the answers, and I just, yeah, what, what about for you, Josh, for your, for your marriage, and I guess being a parent too, but just thinking about marriage, I guess, specifically. <clears throat> you know, Casey and I, we are not as different as my mom and my dad are different. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of other things too with you, mom, especially after Jenny's death, because you were trying to be a counselor. You were trying to be a grandma, a mom and a wife. So there were a lot of different hats you were wearing and and you were in survival mode for a long time. So I know there were times you and dad had to say, okay, this isn't working. This pace of life isn't working for us. How are we going to, how are we going to do this better? Uh, you know, for Casey and I, um, and I, you know, there've been multiple seasons of, of pain that we have been through, uh, together, you know, from Jenny's death, but then other things that may have been because of death, but also just, uh, I mean, just things happen in life. Uh, and, and I feel like we've developed some pretty good rhythms, and I think we had some principles in place earlier on in our marriage uh, for communication and an understanding of how the other one grieves and maybe space they need, and then times when we need to sit on a couch and and listen to each other's emotions a little a little more and deeper and we also have a deep respect for each other's friend groups and the place they play in our healing and in our maturity in life so um i i don't i don't think i'm the only one case he needs to process life or grief with so i love when she is with her friends able to to process that kind of stuff and she does with me too she has a lot of respect for for my friend group. And so there are times where we may be away from the kids or away from the family for a couple of days. Uh, and we both believe in that time that we have, you know, with other people to help us heal. Uh, and man, we're in your coming up on year 19. So man, we know that even though that we, we, nobody wishes seasons of pain and grief upon you know, their lives are upon the world, but we know there, there are more journeys like this. We're going to have to travel in the years to come, but hopefully some of these principles have laid a foundation for, for our marriage and for our kids, you know, to live this out with, with some anchors in place. Do you feel like your um, kids have seen you guys grieve in like a healthy way that it's taught an example for them? Man, I, I, I hope so. so uh, there's yeah. A, yeah, there's a lot of grief for Casey and me that uh, when there have been moments that we have been fairly emotional uh, because of uh, both of our moms, uh, cancer scares, you know, we have not hidden our grief from our kids. There are times we process things in other rooms, but we have used the living room as a place for us to try to flesh out some of the the hurt or sadness that we're experiencing. So 
some of that I think our boys would be able to articulate and some of that they may not be able to articulate for another 15 to 20 years. Yeah. I, I, I had a, um, something earlier this year where, um, my, um, early in 2020, a friend of mine, um, her brother, um, took his, took his own life. And, um, it was it, for whatever reason, in that moment, it just really hit me, even though it'd been years, it was like doing, it was like a post on Instagram in honor of him from previous years ago. And it like jarred a memory and I just like broke down and cried. And, um, it, you know, I just, it just happened in front of everybody. And it really, I think affected my daughter a little bit, but she, I mean, she was really sweet and got to see like all this empathy that she's been learning from school. And I mean, she's only seven, but she just had all these things that I was like, man, I didn't know any of that stuff at seven. Um, and then she also had this moment where she's like, so is it, you know, like, is it fixed? Is it better now? And I'm like, no, not really. And then I just broke down again. So it was just like this thing where you're like trying to, I mean, it's amazing what she knows and what, and, but it's still hard to process. And I, I always think about like, man, that's probably like how God looks at, at us. Like, Hey, you get it. Well, you don't get it. Like, and it, you just keep going through it. And I, mean, I think I'll remember that for a long time, but um, grief just kind of comes out of, comes out of nowhere. Um, I think another, another thing I've really enjoyed just a specific example. I think you've mentioned it in this book and, and maybe in your other book, um, Josh, is and I still can't believe it did you say at some point at Jenny's um uh funeral you said we haven't cried this much since the finale of um Fresh Prince like the you said that live <laughs> look dude hey man you got to speak truth when you got to speak truth you know I just I know I I mean I think it fits it's just so, um, I think it's just a reminder of like the, the complex grief and joy and sadness and processing. And, um, I mean, I think I can be judgmental. Like, I can't believe you said that, but it's like, I wasn't there. Like, I don't know what the room felt like. Um, I was just curious if you were nervous about saying that, or if you were like, I'm good. Man, I think I went with it because that was that was a memorial service where we we were not afraid to go fully human. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great lesson. I mean, I, I, I know that um, I've, I was talking with somebody on my podcast about a funeral that wasn't honest at all. And that it really it really upset this person. It's like we had this service, but like none of it was mm-hmm. authentic. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't know what's going on, but for the people, like, it's supposed to be for the people that are closest. Right. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was quite the line that you have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it, man. It's beautiful from the angle of, it, it was, I think, if I remember right, it was the first thing you said when you got the mic. And we <laughs> that was so deep and heavy. And the way Josh Graves put it a year later, he wrote me and just said, Jenny's funeral was the perfect blend where sacredness met humanity. And I love that because it was incorporating our pain into real life. Now, 
what we wrote about a little bit, I think I just introduced this in Scarred Hope, is when Josh's brother, my youngest son, got the mic at the end, which was another time of heaviness because Josh had just finished. He had just finished an intense prayer. Uh, beautiful. I mean, just sacred. I can't even tell you how much we all knelt. So beautiful. And then Jonathan said, Josh, you're wrong. There was a time in our family where we cried more. And he turned the table on Josh. It's when Saved by the Bell went off. And, you know, he no, yeah, Saved by the Bell. And you were screeched, you know, and everybody laughed again. But yeah. it was so amazing to me. And I still hang on to crying and laughter joining. I work with gr- grieving people that feel such guilt and shame when they start to laugh again. Yeah. That's what yeah. we you're going to laugh again. I promise you're going to laugh. The sound of your laughter is going to shock you. There's an old grief cliche that says this. It feels really, really bad to be so sad. And then one day it will feel really, really bad when you start to feel glad. Because we feel mm. such a, a betrayal. And it's what came up within you when you heard that Josh did that. Like, <laughs> But that's life. That's what we do. That That's how we wear it. That's how we walk it. And so I think it was just a a beautiful illustration of how the Ross family or how Christians are going to walk this out. We are still going to laugh. We're going to tell stupid jokes. I just don't think we have a lot of examples of that. So I hope that people hold on to that when they, when they read your book. Cause I, it resonated with me. I was like, Oh yeah, I get that. But I, I can see a lot of people not getting that. So um, yeah, the humanity of it. And like you said, you do, you feel like guilty. Like, Oh, I'm not supposed to, I do this with, um, like, with sports. Like, why do I care so much about this game? Um, and a lot of times I can narrow it down to be like, oh, because, like, baseball reminds me of my grandpa. Like, there is more meaning to it, mm-hmm. you know, even if other people don't get it in my mind. There's a lot of meaning. Like, I have a, a baseball behind me that my grandpa Gregory, like, got me when I was born in 1985 and like it means a lot to me um then i found out that all the signatures were fake and it's not worth worth anything that was depressing but it was the truth so (laughs) um but yeah that you know we do we feel guilty about the things we um care about um i guess it's just the the church just i feel like we have an opportunity to share more about like no like these things matter like laughter matters and sharing memories matters and you can hold things at the same time there's not like what you're supposed to say at a funeral what you're supposed to say when you're in a room with you know a lot of times as a chaplain like i didn't know the people i was with um so i don't have like i didn't people would be like did you cry every time like no, like I, you cry if you're emotionally attached to something. Like there could be like projection and I'm talking to somebody that reminds me of my friend that died and I cry, but I don't know this person super, super well. And so I'm there to create space for them. Um, and yeah, just the humanity of that. We're really, um, I don't know, we're too afraid to be like human. And I think like Brene Brown and um, um, who's the other author? Uh, John Gottman for Marriage. I really like the um, the work that, that those two are, are doing and, and the work you guys are doing, too. Um, Andrew, I want to say something to you about that moment with your little girl. 
I think that uh, she'll never forget that, that she saw you cry and that she was able to show up and be empathic with you or empathetic with you. Um, I don't know how you're supposed to say it, so I say it both ways just to cover all, all our bases. But uh, I think the important part to teach our children, and I think you did that so beautifully, even unspoken, is daddy's really sad, but we're going to do this together. It's okay for you to be sad, but you're never going to do it without daddy, you know, walking with you or, but I just think there's something that we can give voice to. Daddy's really missing. Grief is not as much taught with a chalkboard as it's taught through holding hands on a path. Mm. And I think that was a great teaching that she'll never forget what she saw from you. And, uh, I just want to applaud that you were able to do that with her, but at the same time, a- able to teach in that space too. As Josh said, and I think that was a, a great illustration that he used, frequently we process in, in our den or our li- living room with all of us together, and sometimes I do it behind closed doors. Like, I didn't necessarily want my children to watch me do the wailing lay on the floor kind of cry, but I'm okay to cry with my kids and go, this is really hard. This is hard. Because it, it's life. It's what we do. It's what Jesus did for his disciples. Taught how, how do we grieve? How do we have pain? And uh, I, just wanted, I just wanted to say that to you personally, that I love you were able to do that. Well, um, I think I pretty much asked everything I wanted to ask. Is there any, so the, the book has the new edition um, added to it that's already on Amazon. Is that correct? With the it is. Yeah. If you when you, if you put Scarred Hope or Beverly Ross or Josh Ross in Amazon, Scarred Hope will appear, and then right by it will be Scarred Hope, and in parentheses the revised edition uh, with a discussion guide. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. Well, thanks for taking some time as we close out 2020. Hopefully, right, 2021 man. is a little different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Hey, thanks for having us on, man. Blessings to you. Can't wait to see you again. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I'd so appreciate it. I look forward to being with you at every chance I get, Andy. Thank you for doing that. Thanks for inviting us. Gosh, always come out with you across the miles. So thanks. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. I got it all here, so I'll hit stop. But um, <laughs>